All right. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to an amazing Saturday session, day six of Surah Al-Nisa. I'm so excited. I've been waiting all week for this evening. It's been a crazy, obviously difficult week. Um, it's hard to believe that we're uh, at war again. Not we, but there is war taking place. It's extremely um, unbelievable, especially, um, you know, you think that you've made leaps and bounds in terms of humanity and you know, and, and life just proves uh, that that's simply not true. Um, first, I, I actually wanted to call attention um, to yesterday's khutbah. Again, I always do this one. Um, I mean, they're always special. You always hear it and you think it's like incredible. It's never going to get better because that was just amazing. And then sure enough, the next week, it's amazing, even more so. <laughs> so um, yesterday's was one of those extremely powerful ones. Um, I really encourage you to listen, um, especially I think the first the first chuppah nearly made me fall to tears. But I thought what I would do is actually share um, this lovely excerpt. Um, you know, Ramin does an amazing job pulling um, from the wealth of content that we have to try and share and give people like just you know little gold nuggets that get dropped everywhere um, to get a flavor for what kinds of things are said at the chuppah and why they're so powerful and so meaningful. So this is a quote from yesterday's khutbah that was particularly powerful, and the, the, the title was The Plight of the Individual and the Sunnah of the Maker. The plight of the Muslim starts, um, starts and ends. Oh my gosh, I just lost it. Hold on. The plight of the Muslim starts and ends with each individual. There is a deep flaw in the way we understand our religion. We take from our religion what boosts our egos and makes us feel special. We leave out everything that is summed up in one question. Do you purify or, you, or do you debase? From the time you wake up to when you go to bed, are the sum total of your thoughts and feelings about serving God's purposes and serving others or about you? It is not uh, the grand theories or obfuscations of academia, often fancy words camouflage hypocritical hearts. The eloquence of scholars often camouflages a deep-seated hypocrisy, an ailment of the soul. Look at our ummah, whatever we thought would work has not been working. That's just one bit of yesterday's extremely powerful khutbah. Um, but I wanted to share this concept that really touched my heart and really wanted to make me cry. Um, this idea of the sunnah of the maker. You know, we often talk about, obviously, the sunnah of the prophet, peace be upon him. But when you think about the sunnah of the maker, God, you know, God just gives and gives and gives. And if our role is to be divine, then you know, this builds on this idea that we should just give and give and give. And that, you know, this is not about me, 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 not about what my feelings are, what I need, but what can I do to give and serve. And it was extremely powerful. Um, so again, please check it out if you haven't. If you don't have time to watch the whole thing, we will definitely, in next week's weekly email, have a summary um, from, you know, the, the chutbah so you can read it and certainly it'll be just as powerful. Um, so in that spirit, actually, I wanted to share um, uh, something that Marwa brought to my attention this morning, um, which is a Muslim woman who just recently passed away. She was only 36 years old. She died of COVID complications. But she was a powerhouse superstar, the kind of person that we talk about you know, um, how Muslims should be. Her name was Jennifer Benich. Um, she was an Occupy Philadelphia um, organizer. Um, let me read you a little bit because I think what's so impressive is oftentimes not just the descriptions of what the person did, but what other people have to say. Um, so uh, forgive me, I'm just going to read a few quotes from different things. 
So um, Jennifer Bennett, a prominent activist who prompted the creation of Philadelphia Community Land Trust and brought attention to housing issues in Philadelphia by organizing encampment protests, died Thursday um, of complications from COVID-19 at the age of 36. And here's a quote from someone. She was a natural defender of people who were suffering with injustices, said friend and fellow activist Ruth Burchett. She said she first met Betchett at a community meeting to stop the Temple University Stadium from being built. She remembered asking Bennett, who was holding a sign, if she wanted to speak, and Bennett said she did, but wanted to talk about the Philadelphia Housing Authority. She was the last speaker, and it roared the crowd. I later learned that this was the first time she had spoken publicly. First, let me just share a picture of her. So she's, you know, she's a hijabi. And, she, and I have like several other pictures of her just like out there, you know, in front of the crowd, which are really inspiring. Um, she leaves behind three children. Her oldest, 18, Cole Bennett, said he was most proud of his mother for the strides she made on behalf of the people seeking help from the Philadelphia Housing Authority. Um, and he said she went in, she went with arguing with Kelvin Jeremiah, president and CEO of the PHA, not being able to be in the room with him to like having meetings with him. She made leaps in housing, said Benich of his mom. He believes her greatest legacy will be teaching him to always speak up for injustice. And she, uh, you should always speak up because even when she was shy, even when she was scared, she always did. And you didn't know she was scared because she would go up there and she would yell and you wouldn't even know she was scared, he said. Um, he went ahead and created a GoFundMe, um, and this is a message from him in the GoFundMe. A few words from Cole, the 18-year-old son. Our loving mother, Jennifer Benich, passed away on February 17, 2022. To the world and so many others, she was known as a ruthless and dedicated housing activist and a fighter of injustice for so many others, but as her children, she was more than that. She was also a loving mother. I'm her oldest son at the age of 18. My brother is nine <clears throat> and my sister is seven. And to us, she was just as passionate about her family as she was for others. She homeschooled my younger siblings while still being fiercely involved in the activism community, even going as far as involving us in protest, teaching us about activism and standing up for injustice at a young age. We are devastated at the loss of our mother and with all the extra responsibility and grief on our shoulders, we would greatly appreciate any help. So there's this is the GoFundMe page. It's support Jennifer Benich's family. Benich is spelled B-E-N-N-E-T-C-H. So she leaves three orphans behind. So please um, support her family. And on that particular GoFundMe page, you're able to see um, the people who want to leave words of support, people that she touched, and they're like lovely messages. And here's another message that I wanted to share about her um, from Marlon Lee McAllister, who donated. Um, on behalf of Philly Socialists, Jennifer Benich was an inspiration to so many of us, always on the front lines, always demanding justice in the streets. Her death hit us all so hard. There was a moment that a comrade told me about her during the George Floyd uprisings when the cops were bullying a group of protesters who had every right to be there. People were running and she shouted something like, come back, we can't let them push us around. And the force of her presence rallied the crowd to come back, to stand up for what was right. Everyone has a story about Jen at a protest. Jen fighting for what's right. Jen courageously standing up and elevating the voices of those who needed to be heard. She was a force to be reckoned with, and we are diminished by her passing. Rest in power, Jen. 
So, you know, this is um, obviously someone who, I mean, this is a huge loss for us as a Muslim community, a huge loss for people in Philadelphia, for everyone who knew her, for her family. But these are the times when we as a community, even if we don't know her, you know, admire her, we need to step up, take care of her family, and so donate and, um, you know, do whatever you can. Look at her legacy online. It's so impressive. And, you know, she's taught her children to carry on her legacy, and may we all be like that, and may we all pass on that um, that fierceness um, and commitment um, to our, our children, inshallah. So um, that, and that was from Independent News um, from, from Democracy Now! Let me just add one last thing, because um, as you know, we now have a website that collects a lot of the news articles that we reference, and so I'll definitely make sure that this is added to that website. There's another one that, um, you know, like right before the, the halakha tonight, um, we got an email, um, and this is from a site, it's Israel-Palestine News, and it's called If Americans Knew. So we get regular <clears throat> email updates dropped in, um, in, the, 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 mail, in uh, the professor's email box. And so that's actually where we sourced the article um, about, you know, the 13-year-old the, um, that was shot in Palestine. But so right before this uh, session started, the, me the message came in that Israel is about to demolish the home of a 95-year-old disabled Palestinian woman in Negev. In Negev, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say that. Israel, Israel is, is set to demolish this home um, in the Negev desert, desert after her makeshift house was being restructured to help it become wheelchair-friendly, a 95-year-old Palestinian woman. Um, just to say, you know, again, we'll share this site. We need to know what's happening. People need to know. Americans need to know. And maybe when people hear, like, more of these devastating stories that, you know, we can increase the critical mass that's necessary um, to make a difference. So, you know, all of this in the spirit of just staying engaged and educated um, with everything that's happening in the world, um, our biggest defense and potential offense is just staying educated, staying on top of the news, and making sure that you're discerning, getting your news from independent sources, not corporate media that wants you to believe something different. Um, thank you so much for being with us. I'm looking forward to another session. I think what we're going to do is take a break now and pray Maghrib. Is that right? Uh, I just want to say something, and then we'll take a break and pray okay. Maghrib. Sounds good. Assalamu <laughs> alaikum. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم سبحان الله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه وتبعوا احسانا الى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي يا رب العالمين um, we, we, I just want to say a quick word and then we're going to pray we're going to break for maghrib and then inshallah um, um, continue with the halaqa surat al-nisa um, uh, um, that w website that Grace mentioned uh, if Americans knew um, um, is a, it, it belongs or it was started by a very prominent novelist um, um, Alison, I think her name is Alison Weir. Uh, she's a, this is a very prominent novelist and a very historical novelist. She writes, she um, novelizes history and she's a very good novelist. Um, 
but I mean, it, it, every Muslim should should know about this woman and should know about her heroic efforts on behalf of the Palestinian people and her extremely daring stand um, at great career risks for herself as as a British novelist um, uh, to bring attention to the, the the reality of the apartheid that exists, the apartheid regime that exists in Israel. Um, so make sure that you do visit the website and that it becomes a part of your regular life. Um, as the other thing I'll, I'll just mention quickly, and it's something that I'm sure I'll talk about more. You know, it, it is really for me. It is. It is deeply. I I don't know how to even what word to use even. If you notice, if if you if you people have been following the Europe's reaction to the invasion of Ukraine. Um. Isn't it striking? Le leave alone the thing that I mentioned in the khutbah, the, 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 the disparity between the way the world reacted to the invasion of Iraq compared to the invasion of Ukraine. But even putting that aside, um, it is extremely disheartening that Europe's reaction to the invasion of Ukraine is many times stronger and more profound than the Muslims world, Muslim world's reaction to the annexation of Jerusalem and the Aqsa Mosque. I mean, if, if you want positive proof of a deep ailment in our soul, if you want positive proof that our very relationship to our faith, our religion, our Islam, our history, our identity, our, even our very relationship to our soul, our souls, our, the, the very spirit that animates our lives, if you want positive proof that there is a very deep, deep flaw that must be addressed at a radical revolutionary level is that look look at the 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 amount of internalized empathy that white people in the west have towards fellow ukrainians under siege and rightly so but compare that, compare that to the Muslim reaction to the plight of fellow Muslims, whether in Burma or China or India, and the, the one that takes the cake of them all is Jerusalem, Al-Aqsa, Quds. It is just 
it is mind blowing. A people do not who do not respect themselves will not be respected by others. It it is a truism. It it, it is an absolute truth. You you have no chance of being dignified or honored by the other if you do not honor and dignify the self. And it is not a matter of words. It's a matter of demonstrative actions. Do you honor yourself in the way that you react to the world? When you are robbed an essential part of your the, the 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 pulsing heart of your history. Uh, Jerusalem is at the core of the soul of the Near Eastern people before Islam. There was always a conflict over Jerusalem between the Romanized world and the Near Eastern world, the darker-skinned people. And then in Islam, with the actual liberation of Jerusalem and the settling of Jerusalem in its proper Near Eastern context, Jesus was a Semite. As all the prophets, the Abrahamic prophets, were Semites. And Jerusalem is a Semitic city in a, among a Semitic people. And all of that was embodied in its liberated form with the Islamic civilization. And so throughout Islamic history, the, the barometer of the well-being of the Islamic Ummah was Jerusalem. Interestingly, I mean, Mecca and Medina was rarely reached by invaders, but it was Jerusalem that was constantly the barometer. And it shocked the non-Muslim world the level of apathy I can tell you that even among human rights activists, the level of apathy that exists among Muslims towards their fellow Muslims, the suffering of their fellow Muslims, shocks even human rights activists. I mean, it, I, I, can, I can see it in their eyes. I can see it in the way they... They, they 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 dance around me and and you know they 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 foot they they take uh, uh, you know take you know what is that word uh, what is that expression tiptoe tip tip around me uh, it's like they, they, it's as if they want to ask me what is wrong with you people why don't you care about your own people I mean it's it's it, they they'll make comments about how surprised they are that, you know, oh, well, you know, Muslims don't seem very interested in this and don't seem very interested in that and they don't seem very interested in this. And especially now that everyone is waiting for the genocide that will explode in India against Muslims. And 
the entire human rights um, community is 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 actively trying to sound the alarm that it, genocide is not an event. Genocide is a process. Every genocide that has taken place was predictable. You don't wake up one day and there's a genocide. A genocide is a, is a process that develops. And so the genocide, every genocide from you know, Rwanda, Bosnia, uh, Miramar, uh, China, every genocide, you could trace the developments. And in every genocide, there were those um, publicists or scholars, if you will, or activists that were saying this is going to happen. And it, then it happens. And so the talk of all human rights communities now is the genocide that will explode in India. But also, like everyone, just say, you know, we, all, we of course, they, they, a lot of them are Jew, many of them are Jewish, so they're, they're, so we, oh, we're, we're pleasantly surprised how easily Muslims accept the annexation of Jerusalem, but we sort of, you know, don't really understand why Muslims are not even interested in, 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 in getting involved about this, this disaster that's about to unfold yet on another Muslim population. And of course, what I don't tell them is it's all connected. The, the minute we stopped caring about Palestinians and the minute we stopped caring about Jerusalem, we stopped caring about ourselves. We stopped caring about our souls and, and, and our, our very dignity. We stopped caring about our history. We stopped caring about our religion. We stopped caring about our God. Don't kid yourself. We don't care about our God. We don't care about Allah. That is the, the harsh truth. We don't. We don't. As much as we pretend we do, but we don't. It is just, that is the, you know, I sit watching, following the news about Ukraine. And as I see the way, what can I say? The way civilized people, white people, are reacting to the plight of fellow white people and then I keep thinking of the examples of the Emirat and Saudiya and Egypt, even when our prophet was insulted by the, by the French government and the images of uh, cartoons of our prophet having orgies, pornographic sex were displayed on the buildings of French, the French government in public. Nothing on the, on the part of the Saudi government. Nothing on the part of the Emirati government. Not, and nothing on the part of Muslim organizations in the United States. All the people that Muslims turn into superstars. Did you hear anything from Hamza Youssef? Did you hear anything from Zaytuna? Did you hear anything from, from the people that you idealize and that you make the embodiment of Islam? And then people are surprised when finally a Muslim apostates becomes Christian or becomes, you know, there's a very famous case of this uh, Kuwaiti who became Jewish and a Saudi who just, a famous Saudi who just 
um, became Christian, and, and it's, very, it's a very public issue. We fail our religion in the way we conduct ourselves, even in the way we use our clicks, in the way we, we click on things when we are on social media. What we favor, what we choose to favor, what we choose to listen to, you are exercising your identity and your dignity every time you decide to spend a dollar or even a penny, when you decide, I'm not going to buy this book that talks about the plight of Muslims, but I'm going to spend money on, I don't know, whatever people spend money on, on Starbucks. That's a choice. You've made a choice. Every time you decide, oh, you know, this is the social event that attracts me, but this is not the social event that attracts me. You've made a choice. And a human being is nothing but the sum total of choices they've made. By the time you get to your deathbed, all that will exist is the sum total of the choices you've made. That is who you are. That is what defines you. That is what constructs your spirit, your soul, your identity. Your body will disintegrate and become nothing, and it is as if you've never existed. The only thing that will remain that has meaning is that soul and the sum total of choices it has made and the record of these choices. If you don't believe in the record, if you're if you're skeptical about the existence of the record, then you're not a then you you're not a believer, and all the power to you, halas, go. You're, you're not a mu'min. but the minute you believe in the record, then you believe that that's the only thing that that will remains. Pay attention to every micro decision that you make. One final point. A couple of khutbahs ago, I talked about the commodification of human beings, the construction of the way that knowledge is manipulated in the world we exist in to construct identity and to construct self-perception. And an essential part of this khutbah was that we don't realize this, or the vast majority of human beings do not have the critical self-awareness to realize this, but their tastes, what they like, what they don't like, what they believe, what they don't believe, what, what repulses them, what attracts them, is all constructed culturally. But culture is often engineered by people who have material interests in the culture they engineer. So if I have power, I will invest this power to engineer culture, to produce desires, to produce understandings, to produce demands that are consistent with my interests. 
And in the world we live in today, you are you no longer live in an isolated village where you can take long walks listening to the birds and watching the streams of water and then sitting at the bank of a stream and wondering about the stars and moons. Today, in the, in the cultures that dominate our globalized world, we are constantly bombarded by engineered culture. And that engineered culture teaches us constantly to commodify ourselves. What that means is to turn ourselves into something that, that serves the market interests of the powerful. So what, what you think you need and what you think you don't need all serves the material interests of those who have the power to engineer culture. And in the context of this khutbah, I made a comment about how, and especially the, 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 uh, uh, that so many youth, the way that they, the, the, their, their sense of self-worth is engineered for them is that they commodify themselves on social media. And I made the comment that it is not, then they are surprised when having been, having treated themselves as commodities, they are in turn treated by others are commodities. And some people took apparently offense at, they understood, and I hope that, I mean, it's shocking for me that they would, anyone would understand me as saying that, that somehow that by you've, you, if you were sexually harassed, that you've asked for it. Commodifying a human being is wrong. Commodifying the self is wrong. How do you commodify yourself? When you draw attention to the superficial aspects of the self that has nothing to do with a real knowledge of who you are, but only an apparent law knowledge of the outer image of the self. In other words, you, you say, well, you know, I'm going to pose myself, in, as we, we constantly see people do in, in social media. Now, does the fact that commodifying human beings is a moral wrong and self-commodification is a moral wrong, does that somehow make it excusable in any way, shape, or form when then people in turn commodify you? Absolutely not. I mean, but at the same time, we cannot be oblivious to the real human consequences of treating human beings as commodities. Look, commodifying human beings destroyed indigenous cultures. Commodifying human beings obliterated traditional systems of knowledge. Commodifying human beings, treating human beings as basically just 
a means for profits have had devastating consequences on the psychology of human beings. It has led to all types of emotional and psychological diseases. It has led to feeding a war industry that dominates our globalized economies. It has led to grossly inequitable spending on weaponry and means of destruction rather than investing in the human being. It has led to horrendous consequences. And an aspect that we never talk about, it has also led to a thriving, apparently unstoppable human trafficking industry. We don't talk about this, but two million people get trafficked sexually a year. And yes, it has everything to do with the commodification of human beings. Because the way that the trafficking industry works is quite often, I'm not talking about refugees and people who, but I'm talking, is that you create a perceived demand on the part of people who don't have means. You convince them that you need these material things. And in order to get these material things, you must be mobile. You must be willing to travel to another country to do service work. It doesn't matter what your degrees are. It doesn't matter what your emotions are. It doesn't matter what your talents are. We need you to do service work in a remote country. And because of this perception, then you prey on them by diverting their service from cleaning or health or whatever service they're going to perform to exploitative services, using them sexually and turning them into actual slaves. It is... Now, why am I saying this? Because we don't... We, part of the culture we, are, we have created is that... And, and part of the, 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 the commodification industry is that don't talk to our kids about the, the dangers of risky behavior. It doesn't mean that you've asked for it. It doesn't mean that a person who's sexually assaulted or sexually harassed asked for it. The vast majority of people who are sexually harassed or sexually assaulted are entirely, they've never engaged in risky behavior. But what I want to emphasize is we cannot turn discourses on risky behavior taboo. Because that's exactly what the human trafficking industry capitalizes on. And yes, that is exactly what allows the epidemic levels of sexual assaults in the societies we live in. Do you know how many college kids go to parties, get drunk, and then are assaulted while intoxicated? We, we don't give, in, in, the, in the little you know, university um, orientations we give our kids, we don't give them a real orientation about that. 
We don't tell them the percentages. We don't tell them that by the time they graduate, one in five of every female student in college is going to be sexually assaulted. And for, for you know, because there are commercial interests. I, I've worked in student, in, in, in this exact field for 10 years at my school. And I can tell you that the people who make decisions, who want to attract students, who want students to pay tuition, yeah, let's warn them. But, you know, we can't really put a lot of emphasis on that. We can't tell them that it is just because some, you know, these frat boys pretend to be your brothers and that you're safe with them and that if you get intoxicated, they're going to be respectfully walk you into home that the 50% of the time it is entire nonsense and that you can't trust them and that often the percentages of women who are assaulted while intoxicated is astounding. Does this mean that I blame a woman? No, I don't. It's not her fault. It is the fault of the institutions that didn't properly educate her about the dangers and causal connections. It is the fault of the industry that silences people who want to talk about responsibility and social mores of caretaking towards one another. It is the fault of the institutions that don't indoctrinate these kids that you are lower than low, that you are subhuman if you take advantage just to... But we have to have an honest, this as Muslims, we cannot just be part of the sheep. That is, I'll, I'll, I'll stop at this. Joe reminded me of a very poignant essay by the French philosopher Alain Bedeau in a book called Polemics. I wish every Muslim would read this article. This article in the book called Polemics is about the hijab. And Alan Bidon brilliantly demonstrates that the whole problem that the West has with the hijab, it is counter-commodification. And that the way that the West tries to negotiate the hijab is to tell Muslim women, okay, wear the hijab, but continue to commodify yourself. That, okay, wear the hijab, but continue to become a sexual object. Because your worth is in, is precisely that. And in the makeup that you will end up consuming as a hijabi. And in the fashion that you end up consuming as a hijabi and in all i mean all the trappings that's what i'm talking about critical thinking critical moral thinking and critical moral thinking and it's all who taught me all of that 
It's the Quran. If the Quran doesn't translate into opening your eyes morally, it's like precisely what the Quran is, is to come and force your eyes wide open at a moral and ethical level. If it doesn't do that, then the Quran is not light. What does Allah describe the Quran as? Light. That what Allah gives you is light. And without Allah is darkness. Ask yourself, in every issue that you confront you, what constitutes the light and what constitutes darkness? If we teach our kids social responsibility, if we teach our kids about risky behavior, if we teach our kids that there are a lot of demonic human beings, if we teach our kids that it is very easy for men to appear in sheep's clothes, are we embracing the light or are we embracing darkness? So I'm sorry if some people felt triggered. But my point is much deeper. I never blame a victim for being assaulted. This is like blaming someone for being tortured because they worked for justice. Or saying you knew the risks when you started speaking out against the dictator. Obviously, that's immoral. But I want our eyes to be fully open as to the realities, moral realities, in the largely immoral world that we live in. Okay, let's pray, Maghrib. Okay, we're going to stop for Maghrib and come back. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So we reached the heart of Surah An-Nisa, the penultimate statement of Surah An-Nisa, the, the unifying theme of Surah An-Nisa. And that heart is in Ayah 75. And that heart is after re-emphasizing the obligation that we saw in Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Ali Amran, the, ob- the, 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 the philosophy of Shahada, the, the witnessing, you exist as a moral witness. You are a moral witness unto yourself 
you are moral witness about yourself. You are a moral witness against yourself. As you are a moral witness unto society, unto as the Prophet ﷺ is a moral witness on you, and as angels are moral witnesses on you, this 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 in it has become common in philosophy to talk about moral responsibility. And moral responsibility is often the, 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 the crux of it or the, the, uh, what makes it pivot is a duty to do or not to do. But it is not as common in philosophical discourse to talk about a moral obligation beginning with the obligation to witness, which is the obligation to recognize. Witnessing is, what is witnessing? It is the, the obligation to recognize what is. So it's like saying, well, you can't get to the step of what to do or not to do unless first we get to the issue of consciousness. Do you know what is right or what is wrong? Do you acknowledge it? Because we might know it, but to actually acknowledge it, to admit it, to confess it, is quite often a challenge, and especially when it comes to confronting the self. And, you know, so after anchoring that, and remember that the whole discourse about fighting in the in Quranic parlance is inextricably connected to the idea of witnessing, the idea of shahada itself. That's why, say, we talk about shuhada. And when Allah says, يَتَّخِذْ مِنْكُمْ shuhada," That Allah takes from you those who are witnesses to truth. So, fighting is never just fighting. Fighting is an act of witnessing. It is a result of recognizing what is right, what is truth, and then acting upon the need to protect what is right through the use of force. And obviously, sometimes that is forced upon you when someone attacks you and you're forced to defend yourself and here, your ability to recognize what is truth and what is right is interconnected with self-interest. Why? Because, you know, I'm being attacked. Someone wants to kill me. And so I want to protect my life. Well, yeah, I'm witnessing to the importance of preserving life, but it is, it is burdened, burdened, that that real that uh, that 
the act of witnessing with self-interest because it's not that I am recognizing it as a principle and acting upon the principle. I am recognizing it because I'm actually under threat. And as we know, when human beings, and the Quran constantly reminds us of that, when the Quran constantly told us there are people who, when they are in true dire straits, they pray to Allah and ask Allah for this and ask for Allah for that. And then when Allah answers their prayers, they turn away. What is that all about? Well, that is, what that is all about is exactly this point, is that human beings have an ability or have the propensity to drop the pretenses that obstruct them from witnessing the truth when they are in trouble. But once the trouble is gone, then the challenge, then, then it becomes more, much more difficult. So, and this, of course, we, we saw that and this is what I just recited in prayer, um, now, but here, the fighting is an act of witnessing on the behalf of the disempowered. Al-Mustadafina, min al-rijal wa So, those who are oppressed, those who are exploited, to actually first recognize that fact, that these are oppressed people, and then to recognize, to witness to the fact that their oppression is wrong and immoral and that it must be removed. And then the harder step of coming to the conclusion, well, you know, in this case, that oppression cannot be removed without self-sacrifice. And we, we see this as a consistent theme throughout Surah An-Nisa, is that often Allah asks it, ask the questions in the rhetorical sense. Why don't you see or why don't you sacrifice on behalf of al-mustadafin, the oppressed on earth? So, and as we talked about, this is all sort of a review, but as we talked about um, that those who are oppressed, having no recourse to help themselves. And their vehement wish is to escape zulm, to escape that the, this to, to escape the conditions of their oppressions, to escape the injustice itself. And then Allah, of course, follows this by reminding us that understand, and we talked about this in the past halakha, that though the, that the, the dichotomy 
is do you fight on behalf of Allah? Do you witness on behalf of Allah? Or do you fight or witness on behalf of Taghut? Um, there were historically there were people there were people who converted in converted to Islam and remained in Mecca. Some of them failed to migrate because of weak willpowers. And as we will see, Surah An-Nisa comes and condemns these Muslims. It condemns them because they subjugated, they were an active agent in their own oppression. They, they, they accepted a situation where they lived under oppressive conditions. And living under these oppressive conditions, as we will see, sometimes even forced them into highly immoral or uh, positions where they actually had to serve in the army of the kuffar. Um, There were other Muslims like Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid or um, Salama ibn Hisham Wa'ayyash ibn Abi Rabi'ah who had converted but were not allowed, their families would not allow them to migrate. And the Prophet would actually pray that, would, would often pray that Allah helps individuals like Al um, Ayyash ibn Abi Rabi'ah liberate themselves. And of course, them and their families. Um, um, uh, this is interesting. There is um, there is a, a, a fellow called um, um, Atab Atab ibn Usaid. Um, this was a young fellow who had converted, but he was under 18. I think he had converted when he was 14 or, or something like that. Um, and he, his family would not allow him to um, migrate. What's interesting is that this individual who had prevented, was prevented from ever migrating and joining Muslims in Medina when Mecca was eventually conquered, Itab was 18 years old. And it has always struck me that the Prophet ﷺ put Itab in charge of Mecca, an 18-year-old, but an 18-year-old who has endured years of persecution um, and persevered. 
these sort of um, again, you know, the the power of socialization and culture. Um, what does age mean? We never think about this, but age is a completely, a thoroughly, a, a, a like class, is a thoroughly um, cultural construct, and it's it's constructed often again for commercialized reasons, for reasons of profits. Um, but our even our idea of what people should be doing at what age and what should you expect from each age category. We we never I mean, the, the, what, if you if you delve into history, it disabuses you from the 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 brainwashing of your specific cultural moment, because you realize that human experience is far more diverse and far more rich than the specific cultural historical moment in which you were born. Um, and what people just take for granted as immovable truth. Anyway, okay. Um, okay. Now, look at 77. أَلَمْ تَرَ إِلَى الَّذِينَ قِيلَ لَهُمْ كُفُّوا أَيْدِيكُمْ وَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةِ وَآتُوا الزَّكَاءِ فَلَمَّا كُتِبَ عَلَيْهِمُ الْقُتَالِ إِذَا فَرِيقٌ مِّنْهُمْ يَخْشَوْنَ النَّاسِ كَخَشْيَةِ اللَّهِ أَوْ أَشَدَّ خَشْيَةِ وَقَالُوا رَبَّنَا لِمَا كَتَبْتَ عَلَيْنَا الْقِتَالِ لَوْلَا أَخَّرْتَنَا إِلَى أَجَلٍ قَرِيبٍ قُلْ مَتَاعُ الدُّنْيَا قَلِيلٌ وَالْآخِرَةُ خَيْرٌ لِمَنِ اتَّقَى وَلَا تُظْلَمُونَ فَتِيلًا There is, there is a lot that I can tell you about. Now, so, okay, so you notice it says, Haven't you seen? Alam Tara Haven't you seen those who were told hold back your hands, scare your hands? What is it talking about? Because you you could posit this, and if you're reading the Quran carefully, you'd say, okay, what does that mean that they were told hold back? refrain and what and establish prayer and do zakah and then when firing was decreed 
they then they they chickened out. What is it? What is it talking about? It's talking about a very human, real life unfolding in 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 Medina. There were a number of people who had converted to Islam, and although they converted to Islam while the, the Prophet ﷺ was there, in their midst, right upon becoming Muslim, they started engaging in macho talk. So, they started talking about bring it on. We're ready for you know to, to do heroics on the battlefield. And they where they rushed to bragging rights. What they were told at the time is what you need to focus on is becoming good Muslims first. No, I'm not going to allow you. I don't want to talk to you about engaging in fighting. What I want you to focus on is prayer and zakah. On practicing Islam correctly and sacrificing financially. But then, as it became clear in Ali Umran and in the revelation of Surah Al-Nisa that Fighting is not about spoils of war. Fighting is not about showing off how your 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 um, your skills with the sword, which Arabs used to have these these um, ways of showing off in battle, which was really sort of a theater, but it wasn't really engaging in much fighting at all. It was sort of like just doing these dances on the battlefield. And in fact, fighting is not even about you. Fighting is about a principle of liberating the oppressed. What we often ignore in the reality of the seerah is that some chickened out. Some, once it, the fighting became real, all their tough talk about, oh, if you know, you'll see what we'll do, evaporated. And they started um, complaining about why should we fight to liberate Meccans? Don't we have enough problems of our own? These were mostly Medinians. These were mostly people, natives, of Medina, not Muhajirun. Another group 
it's not so much that they feared fighting itself or chickened out about fighting. But once they realized that it is there are rules as to spoils of war that you know all the the sort of pre-islamic reasons that people engaged in battle uh, islam has canceled um they became they started objecting there is yet a third group um who their their complaints are rather I mean interesting historically in that they said look we used to be Arabs who were you know we belonged to a tribe and we would have bragging rights and we understood what war was about war was about feuds tribal feuds and after we became Muslim, suddenly we are associating ourselves with dispossessed and with disempowered people. Suddenly what our identity was not no longer about the, how great our horses are or how wonderful our camels are or how beautiful our women are, what our lives became about is um, how this group is oppressed and this group is oppressed and how we are, our identity is interlinked with these groups. So they said, that in fact we became degraded or humiliated people. Of course, from their psychological outlook, this is what they, they understand as, as, as a being lowly, is that you, you are associating yourself with disempowered people. And so they told, the, they, they started complaining that we don't want to fight for these reasons. We don't want to fight to liberate um People that you don't, they're, you know, dis, uh, disempowered people, oppressed people, what's so cool about that? What's so fancy about that? We don't want to, so, now, what's very interesting is that when it reached, their complaints reached the Prophet, some of the companions were livid, understandably. You know, the, now we've already gone through several battles, the major battles, Badr and Uhud, but there were several minor skirmishes and minor battles before and in between, and even after Uhud. And now that it is when the philosophy of what our battles are about are becoming clear, you are breaking ranks and you are reneging because some of them had, in fact, engaged in bay'at uh, 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 
Well, Bayat al-Aqaba itself, that they were among those who actually gave the pledge to the Prophet before the Prophet migrated to Medina. And, and they advocated a hard line towards these individuals. They wanted the Prophet ﷺ to take a hard line. Some of them urged the Prophet to effectively conscript him into battle, to say, no, you've pledged, you've made a pledge, you have to join our ranks, you are part of this community. The Prophet's position was, uh, the Prophet told these folks that, umirtu bil'af, I don't want you to fight with us. In retrospect, I mean, of course, if you imagine yourself as a political commander in these circumstances, that's quite radical, right? Because like, you're basically saying, if you're not, if you don't know what our fight is about, then I don't want you to fight with me. But that means less people carrying arms. That means higher risk. And when the Prophet basically tells them, I was commanded not to even take punitive actions against you. In retrospect, when we go back and we study this history, we really see a prophet creating an ummah. Because if it needs to be clear, as Surah An-Nisa itself will talk about, it needs to be clear who truly understand what this faith is about who truly are willing to witness for God. And who, okay, fine, they, they, they want to claim they're Muslim, they want to claim Muslim status, that's between them and Allah. But as to the group that does understand what witnessing for God means, it must always be clear in for them to this group, it must always be clear what being on the side of God means. To put it differently, maybe you can't do anything about teaching people, all people, not to be hypocrites. Hypocrites will be hypocrites. But for the group that wants to walk the straight path, once a Sarat al-Mustaqim, it must, for that group, they can't afford to become confused as to who is a real Muslim as opposed to who is a hypocrite. Because it is that group that will create the backbone of Islam. It is not the masses and the way the trajectory of Islamic history demonstrates, demonstrates that perfectly. While we have the masses commit 
atrocious idiocies. The masses assassinate Osman. The masses uh, uh, even join in the murder of al Hussein, the Prophet's grandson. The masses ultimately support the person who is responsible for killing Al-Hassan. But the backbone of the Ummah was that core group that understood what being on the side of Allah meant. And we'll see this develop further. Okay. So then, um, so this is, um, where are we? Okay, yeah. And of course, as, as you noted, that 77 explains that for, for the group that when, when the challenge was put to them, they, 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 they became cowards. They, they, they said, they, they, instead of being clear about what their life means and what their life is about, they started having the second thoughts that you would expect human beings to, to have. Okay. Um, and then Allah comments on this through 78. So, Yeah, wherever you may be, death will overtake you, even though you be in towers raised high. Um, yeah, when a good thing happens to them. Uh, okay, maybe I should explain that way. Um, that, okay, so we understand that first Allah says, understand that if it's death that you fear, if Allah wants you dead, you will die regardless of where you are. Um, you are not escaping Allah's will, although your perception is that you indeed are avoiding something. But ultimately, if Allah grants you an extension for your life, if Allah, I mean, actually, if, if you're unlucky that as a result of your cowardliness or as a result of your, your hypocrisy, Allah actually allows you to live longer, well, that's to your misfortune. It's actually not to your fortune because you, you live longer and you commit greater sins. Okay. However, this goes a step further. وَإِن تُصِبْهُمْ حَسَنَةٌ يَقُولُونَ هَذِهِ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ وَإِن تُصِبْهُمْ سَيِّئَةٌ يَقُولُ هَذِهِ مِنْ عِنْدِكَ مِنْ عِنْدِكَ قُلْ كُلٌّ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ فَمَا فَمَا لِهَؤُلَاءِ الْقَوْمِ لَا يَكَادُونَ يَفْقَهُونَ حَدِيثًا Muhammad Asad translates it as when a good thing happens to them some they say the same people, this is from God. Whereas when evil befalls them, they say, this is from you, O fellow man. All is from God. And what then is amiss with these people that they are 
in no wise near grasping the truth of what they are told. Okay, so the tendency when 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 it says that when something good happens to them, they say this is from Allah. What this means is that when things are going their way, they take this as an indication that things are good between them and God. So things are going their way. They are, these people make Allah's will, what they see, with the way they understand Allah is entirely subject to their will. So when what they perceive Allah as wanting is consistent with their desires, they're happy and they say things are fine between me and God. But when things are not going their way and they see what in this context, although Muhammad Asad, how does he translate it? When evil befalls him. Although in this context, Muhammad Asad translates it as when evil befalls him. When anything unfolds that is not consistent with the way they want Allah to be, they don't think, how is Allah testing us? Or they don't think, how is Allah making us suffer the consequences of our decisions? Or how is Allah, in fact, reprimanding us, punishing us, they project whatever happened not as coming from themselves or from Allah, but as the fault of people around them. This is because a lot, some people misunderstand it as they blame the Prophet for whatever. No, this is not what it's talking about. Not here. Here it is, it's talking about a, a psychological tendency with these cowardly souls, with these uncommitted human beings, with these wishy-washy human beings. When things are going their way, oh, we love God. When things they are, are getting tough, when they start suspecting that God wants them to do what they don't want to do, they, their excuse that is to say, well, you know, it's not Allah that wants me to feed the poor, it's the orphans. It's this person or that person. It's not Allah that wants me to go to battle to defend the powerless. It is actually the opinion, just the opinion of this person or that person. That, that's, that's which we can clearly understand. I mean, if you think of even our lived experience, we see that all the time. Is that, well, when it, when, you know, oh, it's not that Allah, I, I mean, subhanAllah, what I was just talking about earlier. 
it's not Allah that wants me to stand up for Jerusalem. No, this is just the opinion of Khalid al Fadl. That that's what it's talking about. It's not what it's not Allah that says you can't live your life oblivious to the suffering of the Rohingyas and the Uyghurs and the Kashmiris and the Muslim Indians and the, and the Palestinians. Oh no, this is just you know Khalid Abu Fadl has some hang up. It's uh, you know he, that's what it's talking about. And Allah comes and says, what is wrong with you, effectively? What, what, what is, these people are psychologically, emotionally, intellectually so crippled that they don't see the hypocrisy in the way that their brain and their heart works. Okay. And going further about specifically things that the Prophet ﷺ experienced among the converts, again, and we're talking about people who had converted to Islam, and some of them were, were you know, good practicing Muslims in terms of their salah, and even gave, some of them even gave money um, and donated money as the, the Prophet had and Allah has demanded, but they balked when it came to what Surah Al-Nisa is talking about. So, وَلَئِنَّ أَصَابَكُمْ فَضْلٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ فَلَيَقُولَنَّكَ أَنْ لَمْ تَكُنْ بَيْنَكُمْ وَبَيْنَهُ مَوَدَّةً يَا لَيْتَنِي كُنْتُ مَعْهُمْ فَأَفُوزُ فَوْزًا عَظِيمًا So, first let's take Muhammad's Asis translation. And when a good thing happens to them, no, sorry. Um, what is it? Oh, oh sorry. I'm, I'm, I got uh, lost for a second. I think I'm just. So seventy-eight. No, I, I, I've, uh, I've, uh, my, my mind lapsed a prior. Ayah that we actually talked about. Okay. So, فَمَنِ هَؤُلَاءِ قَوْمٌ لَا يَكَادُونَ يَفْقَهُونَ حَدِيثًا مَا أَصَابَكَ مِنْ حَسَنَةٍ فَمِنَ اللَّهِ وَمَا أَصَابَكَ مِنْ سَيِّئَةٍ فَمِنْ نَفْسِكَ وَمَا وَأَرْسَلْنَاكَ لِلنَّاسِ رَسُولًا وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ شَهِيدًا So, 79 was whatever good happens to you from God and whatever evil befalls you is from thyself. So this is, some people are confused by 79 and 78 because they think, well, wait, didn't it say that it all comes from Allah and then it says, well, what evil comes, if, if you understand what I'm talking about, then, then, then you understand why there is no inconsistency or there, there is nothing to be confused about. So first, these, remember that these people, when, they are when things are not going their way. They say they they blame or they say, well, this is the fault of or the will of X Y Z. It's not me. It's not Allah. So first, Allah is saying, as a principle, understand 
that all these commands, the commands that you like and the commands that you don't like, are from Allah. So that's one. But further to that, understand that when there are when there is when there are failures when things are going you are suffering the consequences of the decisions you've made in life in other words when life or put it differently when things are screwed up for you look within because it is not sometimes Allah tests you but quite often the source of the ailment is you so that Allah Often, not often, Allah is always bestowing undeserved and unearned benefits upon you. Allah is a giver. Allah constantly gives. You didn't, you don't do much to enjoy your sight, enjoy your tastes, enjoy all the things that you enjoy. They are gifts. Allah is constantly raining gifts upon you. Now, you yourself make the decisions in your life that turns Allah's gifts to things that harm you. to disfavors, if you will. Um, I'm just curious, it just struck me. Um, um, yeah. It's a result from actions of behavior of just according to the natural law of cause and effect. Yeah, actually, something close to this. So Muhammad Asad in, in his uh, in his footnote says, to suffering resulting from the actions or the behavior of the persons concerned, and this is, this in accordance with the natural law of cause and effect, which God has decreed for all God's creation, and which the Quran describes as Sunnatullah, the way of God. For all such suffering, man has only himself to blame, since God does not wrong anyone by as much as an atom's weight. So, this is very close to the idea that you are constantly the recipient of Allah's gifts. But human beings by the choices they make in life 
cause, it's not, I don't, I, I'm hesitating to call it, turn Allah's gifts into curses because it's not exactly that. But they inflict harm upon, they invite harm upon themselves. The, the, and these are the moral consequences of their actions. Now, this is, of course, extremely important in the context of disempowerment and in the context of Surah Nisa talking about waging war because think of it as Allah is making a case for why you need to make the ultimate sacrifice to serve moral causes. So the way you understand it in context is as if Allah is saying, if you do not, if you are not willing, if you are not willing to make the sacrifice for moral causes, in this case, empowering the disempowered, then you only have yourself to blame for what results from that. Because this is essential to Surah An-Nisa. It's like if, 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 again, you are persuading people who at the time of the Prophet ﷺ told the Prophet, why? Why should we be sacrificing for these lowly people? I mean, the people who weren't able to, to leave Mecca and not just Mecca, by the way, other Muslim converts who were also in Ghatafan or in other tribes who were oppressed were often people from tribes that were not very prominent. I mean, they, they, were, they, they were quite even Mawali, quite often even people who the reason they got trapped is because they don't have anyone they can go to to sort of stand up for them. And that was really a, a, a moral challenge because for a lot of the, the, the people who were new Muslims, so, now, so it's not just we're sacrificing to protect Medina. We are now fighting to, to liberate these Mawali. So it's, Allah is coming and educating Muslims and saying, if you fail to live this way, you only have yourself to blame for the moral consequences of that failure. It's like saying what will result is a highly immoral life in which the powerful preys on the weak Exactly like the life that you rebelled against in Mecca, the Muhajirun rebelled against in Mecca. And you're going to, because Allah knows us, you're going to ultimately say, why is the world so unfair? Why is the powerful constantly preying on the weak? Why are things so messed up in this world? Why is the world so ugly? Well, because of you. It is because generation after generation of people chose to philosophize harm away, to, to philosophize the principle of sacrifice away. Exactly like modern Muslims, when they say, why should we 
make sacrifices for the Uyghurs? Why should we care about Palestinians? Oh, why should we care about Al-Aqsa or Quds? And they philosophize it. And they philosophize it so well to the point that you even find Muslims who are defending the Muslim ban. You remember that? And Allah is coming saying, well, okay, live with the consequences. If you fail to make a stand, live with the consequences. Because eventually you will have children who will blame Allah for all of this and say it's a very unjust world and it's Allah's fault and they will rebel against Islam altogether and religion altogether. And you know whose fault it is? It's you. That, that's why Surah An-Nisa was a revolution, people. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ tells these people who are whining and complaining, okay, fine, don't fight with us. We don't want you. Sit on the sidelines. I can't build an ummah with you. And that is why then Rasul So the principle understand that the way of the Prophet is the way of Allah. The, the Prophet is, is not telling you because that they were they were, some of these people, some of these people were you know playing the you know the, what you expect people who think they're really smart and in, in our modern age to do, they were going to the Prophet saying, wait, wait, is this your opinion and or did Allah tell you to do this? And some of them were behind the Prophet's back. Come and say, you know, you know what this is about? This is not about liberating the oppressed or anything like that. This is just about this man. He's a, he's a Qureshi. He's a Meccan. And he, he cares about Meccans. He wants us, Medinians, to sacrifice, to liberate his fellow clansmen and his fellow tribesmen. Some of them were actually saying that. So the principle comes, and Allah says, "Man al-Rasul Allah." Understand all this pontificating and intellectualizing that people are doing, and in and and it, it doesn't work. Obeying the Prophet is obeying Allah, but وَمَن Eighty in the midst of all of this, Allah comes and tells the Prophet, but that who turns away, that who still doesn't want to listen, you tell them all of this and they're still pontificating and saying, Why should we? and so on. We haven't sent you as a controller over them. We haven't sent in other words, precisely what the Prophet was telling them. Okay, fine. I, go, go sit on the sidelines. I have been ordered not to force you. This is what 
يفاهم سوره النساء ومن تولى فما ارسلناك عليهم حفيظ اوكي فاين tell them go away they're still you're not kicking them out of medina you're not telling them they're not muslim but allah knows they're hypocrites and because of their hypocrites don't don't rely on them you can't rely on them okay okay ويقولون طاعة فإذا برزوا من عندك بيت طائفة منهم غير الذي تقول والله يكتب ما يبيتون فارد عنهم وتوكل على الله وكفى بالله وكيلا. so the power of the Quran in stripping, laying bare these people and again the Quran doesn't do this for historical curiosity. the Quran is a demonstrative example of how Allah يحذب أخلاق الناس how Allah teaches us morality ethics so what is the issue is um, yeah Okay, no, I can do better. So, that so many of them, Allah knows that so many of them, when they talk, that when they talk to other people or their public position, whether it is in the presence of the, in the Prophet or in other public forums, they pretend to be obedient, good, solid Muslims. Their position is, oh, yeah, of course, we, we, uh, we obey Allah. Are you kidding? We, we were serious when we became Muslims. But when they go out and the 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 metaphor here is a um, tabit, like uh, as if when they go in the dark of night. But it's of course it doesn't necessarily mean the dark of night. Meaning that when they are away from the public gaze or away from the sight of the Prophet and those who are close to the Prophet So we have several narratives of some of them around Imam Ali radiallahu anhu. They, they say, yeah, of course. We, when, when Imam Ali confronts them and says, are you going to obey Allah and the Prophet? They say, of course. We took the shahada, man. And the minute they are away from either the Prophet or Imam Ali, the chitter shatter and the gossip starts. Oh, you know, this is about his people, as we've talked about. And Allah knows 
the truth that they, they Allah knows their hypocrisy. Allah knows their, their gossip. Allah knows their, their double talk. Farid anhum. And Farid anhum means da'ahum wushanuhum. That leaves them alone. Farid anhum means you're not going to arrest them. You're not going to persecute them. You're not going to call them kuffar. You're not going to. All you're going to do is you are going to leave them alone and understand that for this path, you need to rely on Allah and not on human beings that are often finicky. And what is that expression? Uh, Fay wither, way wither. Fair weather. Fair weather. Fair, fair weather people. Yeah, they are. Subhanallah, because you know, here's the thing: is that we are often taught like a like a little fairy tale, right? The companion, oh, people convert to Islam. They become companions of the Prophet and they're perfect. And then they're perfect. That's it. And then you sit there and we ignore the extent to which the Quran documents how humans struggled. They were humans, just like us. But you see, in their weaknesses, in their struggles, in their failures, as well as in their successes, is lessons for us. It's, it is telling us about how so many people at the time of the Prophet ﷺ simply failed. If we don't do ourselves any favors by ignoring how layered the Quran is and you know, telling fairy tales, about, you know, how just everyone, you know, miraculously says the shahada and becomes a perfect Muslim. Uh, because then it, it, that, cre that creates a, a whole nation of hypocrites because we then are never able to reproduce that and because we're never able to reproduce that, we live in, in, in perpetual disappointment. And... We don't want to admit the disappointment, so we cover it up with our own fairy tales, and you, you, you breed dishonesty in a people. We need to learn to be honest in this. As, as, look at how honest the Quran is. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we learned from the honesty of the Quran how to be honest about ourselves? And our ummah. Imagine if the Quran was being revealed today. Imagine how honest the Quran would be about what we are living through. That's the standard. Okay. Now, so this is precisely why. ولو كان من عند الله من عند غير الله لوجدوا فيه اختلافا كثيرا. So 
This is precisely why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then comes and says, look at how often when 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 you are when you learn about this ayah, what you learn is Allah is saying, look, don't they reflect upon the Quran? Because if if it was if the author was anyone other than Allah, you would find this Quran less miraculous. Or you would find that this Quran contradicts itself. Yes, ikhtilaf and kathira does at one level mean contradictions. But what it's what it's saying is don't they reflect upon how this Quran lays bare the truth, lays bare the truth of themselves to themselves, as it lays bare, like all the Quran of Mecca, like all the Quran of Medina, it, it what the Quran quintessentially does. It doesn't come and you know pat your back and give you a little cheerlead about yourself. The Quran is a book of truth. It comes and if you reflect upon it, and if you understand it properly, you understand yourself. If you live with the Quran, it strips you naked before yourself. It comes and cuts off your excuses. It it, it is it's it is a a document of veracity and truth. So it, Allah is saying, don't they reflect upon what this Quran is revealing? Because if the author was other than God, what they would find in it is what you would expect a human being to do. A human being would not, and, and we saw so many examples of that, right? The, the, a human being would not come and you know, teach you at a certain point to be like steel, and at a certain point give you a lesson about wh- what is your roof, what is your ceiling in life. A human being wouldn't come and, and at another point come and says, in the midst of a of a of a absolute national crisis, when people are tempted to call each other traitors and to execute traitors, and comes and says, turn away from them, you don't need them. That if you reflect upon these truths, you will see. But it requires, as Allah says, يَتَطَبَّرُونَ Quran. It requires, تَدَبُّرْ الشَّيْءِ is to deeply reflect upon something. So it doesn't say, يَقْرَؤُونَ Quran. Don't they read the Quran? And it doesn't say, أَلَا Quran. Don't they listen to the Quran? يَتَدَبَّرُونَ Quran. 
totally reflect upon the Quran. Because if you truly reflect the way we've been reflecting since we started this, it becomes undeniable. You need to be absolutely determined to self-delude yourself. You need to be absolutely committed to self-delusion, not to see that the author of this book cannot be human. Because there is no... Give me another text like it. Give me another text anywhere. And I. this is a defiance to all people from now till the time I leave this world. Give me another text written by a human being that shows the level of moral consciousness and sophistication like the Quran. There, I've, I've, I've spent an entire lifetime reading religious texts. If there is a religious text, name it. I've read it. I've learned languages to read religious texts in their original languages. And there isn't. The Quran is truly a unique document in human history, unlike any other. Can't be compared to, to any other. And what is required to come to that is tadabbur, tadabbur, proper deep reflection. Now, of course, it gets harder because they, at, at their time, to reflect upon their Quran, the Quran, they had the Prophet ﷺ living. They had Ali bayt right there. They had Ali radiallahu an right there. They had Abu Bakr. They had Omar right there. But then as we move away and move away and then we have the interventions of colonialism and we have the interventions of capitalism and we have the interventions of imperialism and we have the inter interventions of globalism and we have the inter all the different interventions and the distance between us and the Quran gets more and more remote, then the level of tadabbur that is required needs to become more and more intense. But look at how small the effort of the Dabbur that we invest compared to how huge the challenge is. To the point that come today and you say, you know, let's invest in it. In, in, it's like most of what we invest in, we want people to tell us what we already know about the Quran. Not anything remotely new, not anything original, not anything that is... that actually contributes to, to layers of knowledge, but just tell us what we, tell us the same old stories, the same narratives about Sira, the same, and, and that's not Tadabr. And that's not how to understand the challenge of ikhtilaf and kathira, that, that why does Allah says if it, if it was from other than God, you would find ikhtilaf kathir. Ikhtilaf kathir is it's not just contradictions. You, you would find it a very different book. It's like you would find it, like the, all the other books that you read, that humans write. Okay.
Now, 83. وَإِذَا جَاءَهُمْ أَمْرٌ مِنَ الْأَمْنِ أَوْ الْخَوْفِ أَذَاعُوا بِهِ وَلَوْ رَدُّوهُ إِلَى الرَّسُولِ وَإِلَى أُولِي الْأَمْرِ مِنْهُمْ لَعَلِمَهُ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَنْبِطُونَهُ مِنْهُمْ وَلَوْ لَفَضْلُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ وَرَحْمَتُهُ لَاتَّبَعْتُمُ الشَّيْطَانَ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا Okay. So, 83, which, um, just a quick, so, it, I'll, I'll, I'll translate as I go along, okay. Because this is a, وَإِذَا جَاءَهُمْ أَمْرٌ مِنْ الْأَمْنِ أَوْ الْخَوْفِ أَزَاعُوا بِهِ So, what is the issue here? Is that part of the weakness of faith, part of the weakness of faith is that it's not just the people who come and are, are having all these doubts the the, the 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 people who start beginning scared of going to war and start making excuses and start you know saying you know engaging in interpretations and all of that so on and so forth but it is also the people who listen to them there are there's it's an equation right and SubhanAllah, again, I'm just always struck by if you really understand the weakness of faith often manifests not in people coming and saying. People rarely come and say, oh, I don't know if I believe. It's like what we understand today about the way a lot of consumers work, right? They they might have questions about whether this is a good car until they make the investment, they spend the money, and once they spend the money, they want to believe that what they bought is really good. And so it, it, you know, then they'll be prone to wanting the good news. Well, most of these people would not dare and did not engage in statements that would cast doubt upon the Prophet ﷺ being the Prophet or the truth of the Quran. Or the, but they, what they would do, they would engage in gossip of complaints and gripes. It's not that I'm questioning the Prophet. Astaghfirullah. I'm not questioning the Prophet. He's a great man. He's, he's a Prophet. But do you know his wife? Do you know what she t- said to me? She said X, Y, Z, and so on. So, the stories about, there are many different narratives about um, um, many different narratives about what was supposed to be the occasion for revelation. 
Some said that Abu Sufyan from Quraysh sent people to Medina to go around spreading rumors about deals that the Prophet ﷺ was making behind the Ansar's back to help out his people back in Mecca. So it, it, it's like, um, you know, the enemy send, is spreading disinformation. And that those who were weak of faith would start gossiping about this. Have you heard? Oh, you know, yeah, he, he wouldn't spend, he, he's not allow us to take spoils of war, but he sent money to this family back in Mecca and so on and so forth. And uh, according to some reports that it is Abu Sufyan who had sent these, these, these Asians to spread these rumors. Others is that the again those designated as hypocrites, the people of Abdullah ibn Ubay and, and the likes had would start gossiping about supposed lost battles that the Prophet had sent um, a, a small forces on military campaigns and how that these forces were defeated. And that some of the gossip um, was that, what is this? Can you believe, you know, he sent this force and then it was ambushed and he sent this force and this happened, so on and so forth. Yet other reports is that the, the occasion for revelation is that gossip about the wives of the prophets who had a complicated relationship at this point in the community because they were understood to have a prized position. And some people who could not get close to the prophet, they're not going to be able to compete with some of the people who truly sacrificed, some of the people who are constantly you know, imagine, how are you going to compete with someone like Imam Ali? You know, how? So what they would do is that they would ingratiate themselves to one of the wives of the Prophet and try to embed themselves in the private life of the Prophet through one of his wives. So, and this was especially, as you would expect, women who would do it at the encouragement of their husbands or their brothers. or the, and But once they befriend a wife of the Prophet, what would start happening? Gossip. Oh, I heard that he did, does this. I heard he does this. Oh, and, and the, the gossip mills it were exploding. And add to that jealousy because the Prophet ﷺ married women 
who were all previously married. And some men following typical Arab uh, customs thought to themselves, my daughter is a virgin, never been married. I want her to marry the prophet. I, okay, so he's the big, the big leader in, in Medina now? Wonderful. Well, I, you know, why don't I buy myself a seat in power? I can't be like Imam Ali or Abu Bakr. I, I, I can't compete with that. I can't compete with Abu Dhar al-Ghafari, but what I can do is that I can put my attractive young daughter forward to marry the prophet because after all, she's much better looking than this woman and that. And the, this is the gossip that we find recorded in the seerah. Again, we, the way we tell the seerah doesn't do us any favors. But what is the impact of all of that on the community? When people, instead of focusing on their iman, they're, they're jostling for position, for favors, for uh, engaging in, in this type of gossip. And among the rumors that spread at one point, according to, to these reports, is the rumor that the Prophet ﷺ got to a point because of all the, the gossiping and the shenanigans being engaged in that things reached a crisis point between him and his wives that he divorced all of his wives. And that people, all they did night and day is gossip about why the prophet is no longer seeing any of his wives and has isolated himself from, is mad, is angry with his wives. Now, was this ayah revealed because of any of these occasions of revelations? To make a long research short, while all of these narratives are historically based, I, I think it is nearly certain that Muawiyah sent people that spread out all types of rumors about... Even, my God, I mean, even one of the, the, the rumors that Islamophobes, by the way, have, have jumped on is a rumor that the Prophet's uncle, Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib, was, is, was homosexual. It's one of the rumors that uh, Abu Sufyan, Sufyan, Abu Sufyan had, had spread in Medina. I found an Islamophobic book that found this rumor and anyway so oh, it's all historical yes Abu Sufyan did that he sent the, these these uh, and the, absolutely that there were the hypocrites were going around questioning and, and spreading rumors about supposed defeats and and, and so on, and alarmist stories and so on but definitely all the material about the gossiping and the 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 the, the stories of different people um, trying to. We even have very interesting stories about 
how they would, especially like uh, um, Um Salama, uh, uh, wives of the prophets who were known for their 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 kindness, and so they would try to make sure that their daughter is there visiting her at the time the prophet comes back home. So the prophet will say, you know, stuff like that. And, or having their daughter, you know, stop the prophet on his way to ask him a question. And, and in fact, you know, saying, make sure that, you know, when, when you stop him to ask him the question that uh, he sees your hair or he sees your eyes or, you know, I could tell you stories that would... And again, unfortunately, some Islamophobes have jumped on stories like that, took them out of context, and used them to, because we are ignorant people, used them to try to shake the faith of Muslims and, and, you know, by telling, oh, you know, this woman tried to, you know, show her the shape of her chest to the Prophet. And doesn't that mean that the, that's all the, the Prophet cared about? But of course, of course, take it out of context. If you if you're weak and if if you don't know if you don't have a solid knowledge base then these stories jar you. It's like, oh my God, what's going on there? You know, it's all an orgy or something like that. But that's the context, and and I just wish we would pro would build proper educational institutions to educate. Anyway, so all of that is historical, but. The ayah, I don't think the ayah was revealed in response to any of these events, including the rumors that the Prophet ﷺ divorced his wives. It is talking about a general psychological trend that for these people, part of of the weakness of their faith is that an event swings them left and another event swings them right. Their emotions are not anchored in deep faith or deep commitment or deep anything. Their emotions are all about their ego, what makes them feel good and what makes them feel bad. So, look at the language. That's why when they tell you these are occasions for revelations, after, I mean, again, making a long story of research short, it doesn't fit. That when something comes to them. Amrun min al-amn. Something that makes them feel amn. Makes them feel amn is what? Makes them feel safe, secure, happy, content. Aw al-khawf. Or something that comes and scares them. Makes them feel anxious. Makes them feel worried. In both cases, aza'u bih. Aza'ubih means what? Aza'ubih, normally, and I'm willing to bet, including Muhammad Asad, will translate it as they speak about it or they spread it. What, what, what number is this? Um, 83? Okay. 
So yeah, he says they spread it abroad. Yes, it means you speak about it, you gossip about it. But what it also means, means you take flight with it. It carries you left, it carries you right. So that's why we call a radio station Iza'a. Iza'a, why? Because it's broadcasting things and it it, it, it affects the emotions. So if you say, that means this matter carried my emotions away until it oppressed me. Za'a is to communicate and to carry. So it means that they, it both, whether it's am or khawf, instead of being anchored in principle, they're about themselves. They're about feeling safe and secure or feeling threatened. And they go away, they're carried away by their emotions and they gossip about it. They start talking about it, complaining about it, or you know, bragging about it, or whining about it, whatever it is. But if they really now so if they would have the frame of reference, Rasul is not just to go and say to the Prophet, is this true? Because some of them did that. But the question is, the question is, would they believe the Prophet? Means, and notice here, not just the Rasul, to those who are, those who deserve Deference among them. Ulil Amr are Ulil Amr. The Prophet is the one in power. But again, the expression Ulil Amr, which people often translate as those in 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 responsible positions. No, it's not the issue of the Prophet put at eighteen years in 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 charge. And so, okay, that's the governor of this area. So I'm going to go and ask them and just believe him. And that's what the ayah is talking about. It's talking about people like Al-Bayt. It's talking about people like Abu Bakr. It's talking about people who deserve deference. Are they about ultimately their own base feelings? This is partly what inspired the khutbah that I gave on Friday. Are they about their, their feelings of amn or khawf, their feelings of feeling safe or, or anxious, or about deferring to those who represent a principle. Remember that these are the same people who come and say, if we like it, it's from God. If we don't like it, then that's your opinion. 
they have a problem with the very idea of learning from any other than themselves. They have a problem with, they, they have an ego problem. Why should I be listening to Imam Ali? He's younger than I am. And this is actually what we get from the Sira. That some of them would say, Imam Ali, he's younger than I am. Why, why should I be listening to him? So what is it saying that I should go and... and well, of course Abu Bakr is going to defend his friend. I mean, after all, didn't he do the hijra with him? So are you telling me that I should just go and ask Abu? Of course he's going to tell me. He's going to tell me... And, and we get we get that from actually this, the many of the reports that received that that um, that reached us from the seer. And it, it is coming in again, exposing themselves to themselves and saying, Allah knows that you're flighty, and your your only frame of reference is yourself. And that you are nothing about nothing more such substantial than your ego. Despite all the, the, the talk that all your grand talk about being Muslim and being devout and being so on. What time is it? So I'm not sure I don't know. Okay. Then notice 84. Faqatil fi sabilillah. إلا نفسك وحرد المؤمنين عسى الله أن يكف بأس الذين كفروا والله أشد بأسا وأشد تنكيلا أن ومن يشفع شفاعة حسنة يكن له نصيب منها ومن يشفع شفاعة سيئة يكن له كفل منها وكان الله على كل شيء مقيطا so, yes, it's like it's very hard to 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 jump over anything in Surah Al-Nisa. So now, it comes back. Remember that all of this discussion was because of the critical issue of fighting for the sake of the disempowered. And all the, 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 the weaknesses of the soul when people were required to make a sacrifice for a principle that ultimately is not about their own status, their own position, their own prestige, and so on. So Allah comes back and anchors this and we have not just for the Prophet but for all those who are on Asirat al-Mustaqeem so what do you take away from all of this well these people have their own problems that they need to worry about. And Allah has told you already, you are going to 
speak to them wisely and profoundly, you're going to, you owe them the truth. You can't lie to them. You can't tell them, oh, you're fine. You're wonderful. You're great. But ultimately, turn away from them. Because ultimately, when it comes even to the issue of battle, your responsibility is about your duties before Allah. And you owe an obligation to advocate Harrid al-Mu'mineen. Now, notice this, this remarkable thing. So you owe an obligation to do the right thing. And you have an obligation to speak on behalf of the right thing, Harrid al-Mu'mineen. But your obligations stop at that. But then it comes and says, Allah and If just if Muslims just would pause just at this, it's like saying it's not about having the right numbers, it's not it is about doing the right thing. And reflect upon the fact that perhaps if you would do the right thing, understand it is not you who are ultimately going to um, going to avoid your enemies harming you or hurting you. It is really Allah. I mean, look at our, the world we live in today, right? Look at the way, I mean, I've been, it, how many times, if you've been following the news, you hear people belonging to NATO saying, article this and that, uh, article five, an attack on, on one of us is an attack on all. And but even if you're not a member of NATO, look at the way their hearts reach out for one another. Poland says we're ready to take a million people, and I don't know, you know, Romania says all oh, the Romania economy is horrible. Oh, you know, we're taking in refugees. Oh, even Moldova, which is dirt poor, uh, and you know, we we're gonna send arms. We're gonna engage with. No one is talking, I mean, and people are angry and upset at Germany and Italy because they don't, are not, you know, they're, they're, they're thinking about the economic cost of cutting off Russia from the SWIFT system. And, you know, it's as if, oh, when it comes to, you know, our, 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 our people, no economic price. Now, compare these attitudes to the way Muslims are with one another. I mean, compare the way the Saudis dealt, or Emiratis, or Egyptians dealt with Uyghur refugees, with Rohingya refugees. Compare the way that they will treat Kashmiri refugees. Where does this come from? 
in my view, after all these years, I believe that, that there is this, this magical thing called, it's like the, the divine magic of empathy and care. And when your heart's hearten, it's, it's a sign of Allah's anger. When you can't feel for another, especially your brother, your sister, it's a sign of Allah's anger, Allah's curse. And sadly, because we're not the recipients of it, when you're, you, you feel for the suffering of your own kind and you are willing to give whatever it takes to help your own kind, it's a sign that at least you, you, you've played by the rules. And as hard as me as for me to say it, that at least you're not as cursed. I mean, it's, it's, it's for a Muslim to say it, it's, it's, it's extremely painful that we are more cursed than, than, I mean, Allah is that angry with us. So, look, what Allah is saying is that if you do the right thing, if you do the right thing, perhaps their persecution, their, their, their enmity will come to an end, which also points to another thing. It explains to you why Muslims fight. Muslims fight to repel if Allah says that do your part to respond because if you do perhaps Allah will ba's means the, the, the harm inflicted that's the ba's or the 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 um the, yeah, the pain, the agony inflicted upon you. And the challenge is to understand where power truly lies as you make, because what prevents you from making a proper moral commitment to a principle that you know is right? It's because whether you admit it or not, you doubt that Allah is truly the almighty, the all-powerful. So much of what prevents us from doing what we, our, in our heart, we know is right, is because we say, well, you know, if we do it, the consequences will be X, Y, Z, then that will happen. And we don't want to look very deeply as as in what ways this betrays our true belief that Allah is the Almighty, the All-Powerful. Then, then another, then underscoring, we started out with the principle of Shahada. I mean, not started out, but we, the, we went to the principle of witnessing. From witnessing, 
ex the explanation as to what you are struggling for. That you are you are fighting to liberate the disempowered, and then dealing with all the 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 weaknesses that prevent people from living up to that principle. And then Allah comes, and, and, and we, we've, through that, Allah talks to us about, well, if you fail to live by the principle, you will suffer the consequences, which is something that we've already learned repeatedly throughout the Meccan Quran. It's as if the entire Meccan Quran is preparing the believers for this lesson. Then Allah comes and says, understand that if you, what this is about, the way morality works, the way ethics work, is that if you set a good example, your rewards follow from the example you set. And if you set a bad example, then be brave enough to confront what will follow from the bad example. Now, there is a sort of a, what we'd call a latifa. Look at what Allah says, وَمَنْ يَشْفَعْ شَفَاعَةً سَيِّئَةً يَكُنْ لَهُ كِفْلٌ مِنْهَا Kiflun minha means a part of it. Subhanallah, it's like Allah is saying, if you do good, Allah lets the the what the what the good that follows from the good moral example that you set, lets it flow naturally, unimpeded. But you know what? When you do bad, you only suffer part of the what follows, the consequences of that bad. As so many commentators noted, part of Allah's mercy is that Allah intervenes to prevent us from suffering the full consequences of our follies that if we truly suffer the consequences of our follies, no one would have a chance of making it to Jannah. And life on earth would have been destroyed a long time ago. But in fact, Allah doesn't allow human beings to suffer the full consequences of our follies. But Allah constantly mitigates what would just logically, from just from a causal connection analysis, would follow from what you do or what we do. And then the very uh, I, I would have forgotten. Um, Imam Ghazali notes about um, verse 
Um, I forgot how he put it, but anyway, that I, I'm pretty sure this is in his hair. Um, so he says that a shafa al hasana was shafa al He focuses, he says, in the context of of this ayah, the example that Allah specifically wants us to reflect about is, as he puts it, نقل الحديث وإقاع العداوة بين الناس is the tendency of human beings to gossip and to irresponsibly cause enmity between human beings in the way they use heresy heresy and the way that they irresponsibly communicate about each other. So it's saying the context of, of these verses is is the example you set by, by what you choose to talk about and how you talk about it. An interesting point. Okay, so now 86. وَإِذَا حُيِّيتُمْ بِتَحِيَّةٍ فَحَيُّوا بِأَحْسَنَ مِنْهَا أَوْ رُدُّوهَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَسِيبًا Now, it comes in this point that Allah comes and say, tells you if you are if you are greeted if you are the recipient of a greeting, then you either return it at least an equal in an equal sense or even exceed it. Um, we often learn this ayah coupled with other hadiths that say that if someone says assalamu alaikum then you say assalamu alaikum back and in fact we turn this into a performative sunnah as if what this ayah is about is simply about if someone says assalamu alaikum then make sure you say assalamu alaikum back or if someone says i actually <laughs> Like someone says, Salaamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah wa Barakatuh, then make sure that you say, Salaamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah wa Barakatuh, you know, so that it's equal to it or more. But, you know, because if someone says, Salaamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah wa Barakatuh, and you say, Salaamu Alaikum, then that's not equal to it, then you violate. You know, this is a clear example of how we empty our Allah's revelation from its ethical power. And turn it into these performances. That whatever is meaning behind them is 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 a closed 
text, not an open text with endless potential. Okay, so notice that this comes right after Allah tells you about setting an example. So in the context of understanding the dynamics of al-shafa'a al-hasana and al-shafa'a al-sayi'a, that it's like Allah saying, in the same way that Allah taught us about witnessing, Allah is saying, everything you do, everything that you do is a shafa'a. It is a shafa'a. In other words, you are setting an example. And you are setting an example either for good or for bad. And if for good, as as it's consistent with the entire narrative of Surah An-Nisa up to this point, the, the benefits accrue to you. And if it's bad, well, if you, you even reflect upon the fact that Allah doesn't even allow you to suffer the full consequences, but whatever whatever bad follows from it, it's because of you. You've earned it. You've caused it. Okay. Then, at this point, Allah comes and says that if is a huyitum what is what is a tahiyya? is derived from what linguistically it is derived from a well-wishing of good life. Right? That's what's greeting it. Tahiyyah means what? I am wishing you good life. That itself is derived from a deeper meaning of al-ihya, to give life. So, is a huyitum. So, if you could say, if I say ahyaytahu, it means I've given life to this person somehow. Normally, when we say "hayaytahu," we don't understand that as giving life. We we understand that as I've greeted them. But in old Arabic, "hayaytahu" has the same meaning as "ahyaytahu." What is derived? What it comes from is that what gives you life. فَإِذَا حُيِّيْتُمْ At one level, it means that if you receive a greeting, yeah, sure, if, you, if someone wishes you well, then make sure that you reciprocate the good wishes or you exceed the good wishes. But at a deeper level is... If any understand the laws of, as Muhammad Asad would put it, the, the natural law of morality, 
that the way this works is that you want to know what brings you prosperity, what makes you thrive, is that if you see good, profound moral examples, al-shafa' al-hasana, that creating of good moral example is itahiyya itself. It is the giving of life. Make sure that when you receive these good moral examples, that you reciprocate the good moral example with a morality that is that is reciprocal to it, equal to it, or even exceeds it. It's like the formula for success. If you don't understand that morality itself is a dynamic, it's an intercourse. It is those who do good receive good in equal proportions or even exceeding proportions. That's how you establish a moral order. That's precisely why Allah demands that it is worthy that you're going to make your ultimate sacrifice to liberate the oppressed. Because it's about setting moral examples and how we reciprocate these moral examples. It is not just about saying, Salaam alaikum and Salaam The amazing thing that Muslims took this ayah that Ibn Arabi says in one ayah, the secret of all husn, the secret of all goodness was revealed in this ayah. Muslims took it and somehow we turned it into brother, salam alaikum, salam alaikum. And khalas, that's, that's, we've, done our, we've done Surah Al-Nisa, we've done, done, done the entire ayah. And it doesn't, we don't even, I've never heard anyone talk about, well, at least even having your heart true a true well wishes towards a person you say salamu alaikum back to. We never even talk about what's in your heart. Just say it. Whether even if you hate them, even if you despise them. Yeah, oh, they say salamu alaikum. And, and, and we've turned it into, into a meaningless, performative experience. Meaning performances. We just perform without, but what Allah is teaching us is, and Ibn Arabi is correct, the secret for a beautiful existence. If good moral examples are not reciprocated proportionally or exceeded, then we're inviting a disaster. And that is what, subhanAllah, it says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَسِيبًا And notice that nothing escapes Allah's accounting. It's not just about saying, Salaamu Alaikum, Salaamu Alaikum. 
a computer could do that. You don't need Allah to keep keep track of who says salam alaikum and who says salam alaikum back. But you do need a God to understand who sets a good moral example and who reciprocates goodness with goodness and who doesn't. Do you see how profound this book is? If, the, if, if Muslims just understood this book, this is not a human speaking. A human, it's impossible. Humans don't talk this way. And notice what follows this. Allahu la ilaha illa huwa. La jma'annakum ila yawmi qiyamati la rayba fi. Wa man azdaqu min Allahi hadisa. And that is precisely what, why it's followed by a reminder after, this is often in Quranic style, after Allah gives you a very deep listen, Allah reminds you of the precepts for this deep lesson by something like precisely like Allahu la ilaha illahu. It is God and there is no other than God. And then, وَمَنْ أَصْدَقُ مِنَ اللَّهِ حَدِيثًا Who's more truthful? Who, who is more perceptive, more truthful, more honest, or more wise than Allah? Who is more voracious than Allah? Obviously, again, Allah is not telling us about saying Assalamu alaikum, Assalamu alaikum back. Allah is telling that, us that about a deep moral point that requires tadabbur Qur'an, deliberating about the Qur'an. Let's take a three-minute break and then, what time is it now? 9.20? Okay, a three-minute break and then I'll come back for another 10 minutes and, and we'll... we'll uh... Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So we get to this penultimate statement. If you are given, it's like Cheyenne in the break pointed out that this is an ethical law. It's an ethical law. When you are given a life, i.e., you don't just reciprocate goodness, but you exceed goodness. Goodness here is is, uh, is um, compared to, or is um, I'm, I'm like the 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 comparison. The construct 
is that if you are given life, the moral law of goodness itself, then you reciprocate and you exceed. Then as you notice, as and this is again the style of the Quran is that you have a discourse and it it reaches a, a, a ultimate um, moral lesson and then it goes again and shifts to in topic and will reach another crescendo. So it's like, you know, goes down and up and reaches these moral crescendos. So after 87, فَمَا لَكُمْ فِي الْمُنَافِقِينَ فِي الْمُنَافِقِينَ فِي أَتَيْنَ وَاللَّهُ أَرْكَسَهُمْ بِمَا كَسَبُوا أو تريدون أن تهدوا من أضل الله ومن يضلل الله فلن تجد له سبيلا. Okay. Eighty-eight. Um, Muhammad Asad's translation. Maybe you can help us. How then could you be of two minds about the hypocrites, seeing that God, God's self, has disowned them because of their guilt? Do you perchance seek? to guide those whom God has let go astray, when for him whom God lets go astray, thou canst never find anyway. So, فَمَا لَكُمْ فِي الْمُنَافِقِينَ فِئَتَيْنَ What is it, what now, now that we, we've, we've changed topics, or now it's like a new paragraph, we're getting to a new uh, permutation on the theme. So now it goes back and talks specifically about the, those that the Quran describes as the hypocrites. And as we said, the hypocrites are people who have taken the shahada, could even practice Islam to some extent or another, some of them even to a considerable extent, because some of them even uh, would attend every prayer in the masjid. But are hypocrites because of mortal failures in their faith? And here, the narratives, there are many riwayat, uh, there are many narratives that are very interesting. Um, oh, uh, the other thing, before I forget, the other thing that Cheyenne pointed out that I actually really like is that, that this, that, um, is again, and it, it is textual evidence of the, the, the notion of moral trajectory because it sets a principle that has a limitless potential. The principle is the moral examples in life are a, a gift of life itself. It's it's haya, and the reciprocation of good 
construct a society, build your societies in which you affirm acts of moral goodness to encourage them and to propel them forward. That's the philosophy of a moral trajectory. It's not a moral cap. Those, that, that is the entire problem with the, the way we, the reductionism by which we often take these, the way that Allah is teaching us a philosophy of life that propels us forward a great moral potential, and then we reduce it. We reduce it to a, a, a simple act that in which the entire ayah is discharged by the simple single act, whether you say salam alaikum or and so on and so forth. Anyway, okay. So going back to um, 88. So then the hypocrites. So we have uh, uh, many narratives. Um, um, so some the, some of the narratives, some of the reports say that what this the the hypocrites that this ayah is talking about are the hypocrites of Uhud that we've already encountered. The, these were the people who started marching to battle on Uhud and then turned away. Um, it's a case of talazum, meaning that they, they, they think that this ayah fits this group of people. And yeah, of course, it's talking about them, but not just them. And, and in part, because we know Surah Al-Nisa is revealed well after Uhud. So that this group of people that had displayed a, a betrayal. I mean, they, they, they left the battlefield or on the way to the battlefield. More um, pertinently, however, there were a group of people who migrated from Mecca to Medina, became Muslim, migrated to Medina, but found life in Medina difficult. And here they break into two further groups. Some of them apostated. Some of them left Islam and went back to Medina. But these people wouldn't be called munafiqeen. These people would be our apostates, the kuffar. They, yeah, they converted, they migrated. But to say that it's talking about them and calling them hypocrites, how are they hypocrites? They, they've left, I mean, they've left Islam altogether. And yeah, they went back to Medina, but they went back as kuffar now. The other group, they converted, they migrated, but they found life in Medina difficult and they didn't want to apostate. So what they did is that it's, it seems like they met behind 
in secret or they started talking in secret. And lo and behold, Muslims wake up one day and find that these people have left Medina and went back to Mecca. And then they sent the Prophet والسلام, a letter, Mukataba, said, that the letter said, we are still believers. We, we, have, we still believe in you in the Prophet. But life in Medina is hard and we're homesick. So we've decided to go back to Mecca, although we remain Muslim, and some of them remained Muslim, by the way, until, even until the Mecca was conquered. Because some of them come to the Prophet ﷺ after Mecca's conquered and ask him for forgiveness. So we have several groups, right? We have those who converted and didn't migrate. Some of those who migrated were, who didn't migrate were because they were coerced. Some of them didn't migrate because they thought migration is too costly. They, they didn't want to make the sacrifice. Some of those who migrated, some of them found life in Medina hard and they apostated and went back to Mecca. And some of them, didn't apostate, but they went back to Mecca anyway. And what this, what, what Surat al-Nisa here is talking about is that this had quite an impact upon Muslims, I mean, after all, these were their brethren and their sisters. They, they converted with them when it was really hard to be Muslim. They were in Mecca with them when they were persecuted. They migrated with them, for God's sake. They, they, they were not like, you know, converts that came later on in Medina. These were people who became Muslim when it was costly to become Muslim. And it broke the hearts of so many of the Muhajireen that some of them apostated. After you, you've, you've lived in the company of the Prophet ﷺ, you, you, after you've, you've seen all of this, you've received all the Qur'an in Medina in Mecca, and after you've migrated, and after we've gone, fought several battles together, won Badr and lost Uhud and so on, and then you apostate? But the, even those that were harder, were greater fitna, were the ones who didn't apostate but went back to Mecca because they disobeyed the prophet, they broke ranks, 
And they're effectively telling the Prophet, come on, man, you know, don't be such a hardhead. I mean, why can't we be Muslims and just live in Mecca? What's the big deal? The example they set, now, n- n- think of the Shafa'a, right? Shafa'a al-Hasana, Shafa'a al-Sayyi'ah. The example they set, what if everyone starts saying, yeah, okay, so why not? You know, and the Meccans were actually smart because for those who told them, we want to come back and live amongst you as Muslims, for those people who broke ranks and came back after Uhud, they said, oh, you're welcome. We're not going to persecute you. In fact, we're going to give you your properties back that we confiscated upon your migration. What a fitna. So now, the word is getting around that if you agree to break ranks with remain Muslim, don't call Muhammad a liar. Uh, say, I honor him, I respect him, I love him. All the right things. But if you go back to Mecca, Mecca will welcome you and give you your property back. And indeed, we find that then, you know, we're not talking about the people that you grow up hearing about, like Ali and Abu Bakr and Omar and so on. These people were, were constantly, you know, they were always on the side of the Prophet. What you know? They they, they it's what the, they they were their loyalty, and their their commitments were very clear. We are talking about companions that you that you don't hear about as often, because also so many of them either are martyred later on in battle, or even after the pro, the, the prophet dies or, or so on. But they started having a debate not about necessarily even at least in, in the presence of the Prophet or in the presence of Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu not about should we also do what they've done, but they started saying, well, you know, these are not necessarily bad people. They're still Muslim. And, you know, look, they wrote a letter that's very nice and says, we believe in you, you're a good man, we, we, we love you, uh, but, you know, forgive us, life is hard, and we're homesick, and, you know, um, and this is what it's talking about. فَمَا لَكُمْ فِي الْمُنَافِقِينَ Allah knows that You've broken, you've become into, uh, you've broken into two factions about these people. And you are, some of you are, you know, saying, well, there's still our Muslim brothers and, you know, but let's be very clear. Wallahu arkasahum bima kasabu. This is immoral failure. It's a moral failure because 
as a principle. The Prophet is in your midst. And it is, this is precisely how human beings start deferring to their egos, not deferring to those who deserve deference, whether the Prophet or Uli al Amri Minkum, people who are worthy of deference. And it is this, if you, in our modern language, it is this individualism and this subjectivity which then opens the door to all forms of egoism. But since Allah is educating you, these are misguided. In fact, Allahu arkasahum bima kasabu. That expression, arkasahum, Allah um, Muhammad Asad uh, uh, translated as disowned them. Arkasahum, it could be, uh, Arkasahum means it's like um, Arukus is a, a major, not just failure, but if a, a failure and an inability to get up. Arkas is to like, it's to like plump down and not be able to uh, like, uh, uh, um, um, if you say Urkisat al naqa the camel fell to its knees and unable to get up again. So, Arkasahum bima kasabu. They've earned, this is what they brought unto themselves. The, Allah did not, did not inspire them to do right because they gave into their weaknesses, their egos and decided to claim exceptions to themselves. And as a result, they're suffering the consequences of their moral failures. And don't be surprised, because the, what is hard for so many of you is that you say, Well, how could they, I mean, we were all guided together. We all shared these experiences. But understand that moral failure is something that a human being earns through their own actions. A moral human being brings unto themselves. And that is the way Allah allows them to go become misguided. And when they are misguided like that, understand that part of Iman, part of surrendering to Allah, is to accept that people will go astray and there is nothing you can do about it. If you're weak, if you yourself don't know what your Iman is about, the fact that your friend has gone astray has an impact on you. But if you understand 
that you are only responsible in the same way that Allah tells you, fight in Allah's way, qatil, fight. You are only responsible for yourself. And harrid al-mu'minin, and advocate what's good. But beyond that, who falls, who doesn't fall, it is what they've earned, and you don't know the way they've earned it, but Allah does. It might look like a mystery to you, like even, how did this happen? But Allah knows what the, the, the maladies in their hearts that brought about these results. You don't, but Allah does. So remain clear-sighted in your path. Okay. Um, okay, um, I can't. I have to do eight and nine because it's 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 just the completion of the thought. Um, no, because it will take us some time. Okay, uh, let, let's postpone eighty nine till next halakha. So, so we stopped at eighty nine. It's a continuation of the thought, but. I can't do it without giving it its its due. Okay, so let's stop here. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. We're waiting for the close of ceremonies. Performed by none other than Grace Song. dubious honor as usual I feel pummeled <laughs> so pray for me that I can do this justice because I've been scribbling like crazy I we always reach a point where I'm like oh my god I, I actually was telling Sheikh as we were taking this last break that okay you've knocked us to the floor and now you're like stepping on us so that's how it feels alhamdulillah is amazing absolutely it, it wouldn't dream of any other better kind of beating <laughs> um Okay, well, first, before, before we do the highlights, actually, from, from the end of the last halakha, um, Ramin actually reminded me, we wanted you actually to mention that what you said at the end of the session, kind of like after the cameras go off and everything, that it's amazing how the most ethically oriented surah um, is the one that's named after women. Did you want to say anything about that, or should we leave that for a Q and A? I mean, it's, it's no, remind me, remind me of it to, at the end of the surah, okay. because I, I actually there, there is a lot to say about that. But why the surah that carries the most core ethical teachings is actually named after women, is named Anissa. <laughs> okay, alhamdulillah, I'm looking forward to that. So. Um, just some highlights that I tried to, I mean, the, the, you know, obviously this is mind-blowing as, as ever, and it's amazing that we're on day six, and it's like 
every single day has just been so mind-blowing and there's just you know an endless stream of beauty and so we are all moral witnesses we have to witness to what is truth and what is right first and then we can fight as part of an act of recognizing the truth witnessing and acting on protecting um through some through, sometimes through force sometimes through defense but that fighting is is witnessing on behalf of the oppressed and we have to understand are we fighting for god or are we fighting for oppression or taboos um and that it um the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was creating an, an ummah of people who were very clear about Allah's command um, and that this would be ultimately a small group, um, the backbone of those who would understand what it truly means to fight for Allah. Um, and that um, we have to understand that all is from God. I think that clarifying that, that verse, um, you know, that sometimes I guess gets confusing that um, you know when human beings try to divert I guess their own responsibility by philosophizing um, and not following God's commands so it's like saying um, you know if if uh, well, okay let me get to that um, and if God's and God is t telling us if you don't follow my path then the consequences are your doing um, and clarifying for people that following um, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is following Allah. Um, that it's not about, you know, if we like it, it's from God, and if we don't like it, it's just your opinion. Um, and that people who are like that, just let them go. Um, you're not their keeper. Allah knows what's truly in their hearts. Um, and how we really have to learn to be honest um, even about our own history, about how um, the early Muslims were human beings, that they struggled, um, that this is not about people converting and then they become perfect. Um, because if we start playing into that delusion or fairy tale, then we just ultimately become you know, dishonest and continue to build fairy tales upon fairy tales. Um, and I thought just such a powerful question, like what would the, the Quran say about us and, and who we are and what we're doing today? Um, and how we really need to um, deeply reflect on the truth of, of the Quran and how it just lays everything bare. How oftentimes um, weakness in faith manifests in gossip um, and choosing emotion over principle um, and you know giving into ego, not being willing, not being willing to defer to people who have wisdom or who have um, the right to be, you know, who should be deferred to, um, that ultimately it is about doing the right thing. It's not about numbers. Um, and oftentimes um, weakness is, is it's a lack of true belief in Allah's power. Um, and then the incredible um, uh, verses about how when you do good, um, the goodness flows if you do bad, that Allah's mercy intervenes and doesn't, you know, saves us from the full consequences of our, our, our bad deeds. And that it's truly about setting a good moral example or that you're setting an example. You have to recognize you're either setting a good example or a bad example. And then just the absolutely mind-blowing discussion on, you know, the secret of all goodness, the secret for beautiful existence is exceeding goodness, um, exceeding moral goodness, not just 
reciprocating it. And I think that whole, like, as, as soon as you start talking about how, oh, when you say salamu alaykum, you know, you just, you have to say, you know, alaykum salam wa rahmatullah, you know, have to add something to it. Like, that was such a, like, um, so burned into me from my first year as a convert. It's like, even to this day, I feel like, oh my God, I'm, somebody just typed to me, um, Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. I'm like, okay, I cannot, I have to respond with, you know, the exact same. Um, it's mind-blowing to be able to go beyond that, that it's not about the performance of that, but it's truly, you know, an ethical secret for, for existence and that this is about the moral trajectory that is limitless um, and that we keep learning. You know, the Quran is just, it, it, we haven't even begun to develop the... the um, the potential, um, and in, in fact, we actually cap it. Um, okay, and just the, and then the last part that you said that, um, you know, I mean, I think this is a struggle, like, you know, about people who, um, the point about Allah did not inspire people, like when they choose to do wrong, when they give in to their ego, um, and choose individualism um that sub that individualism and subjectivity opening the door to all forms of egoism and that you know Allah did not inspire in them to do right they gave into their egos and claim exceptions and suffer suffer the consequences of their moral failures um you know I, I like this is so it's so current it's so like I feel like this is something we see every day as Muslims, especially as we're striving to learn more and do more and try to internalize the lessons that we've been teaching, you know, that we've been gain gaining here, that when you see, a, you know, you deal with Muslims in all different ways and you find that um, there's so many excuses for not doing the right thing. And so it's really amazing to be covering this and to take from it what you know what the Quran said so thank you so much this has been absolutely mind-blowing um and even to finish mid-thought <laughs> not jump into um that's a good cliffhanger to carry us for the week inshallah so um thank you everyone for being with us hi everybody you guys want to just stick around for a little bit um we can well let's officially end the session maybe we can just say hello really quickly and um Thank you so much. This has been an amazing, amazing session. Alhamdulillah.